Somebody say hello and amen. Hello. Hello. <laughs> hello and amen. Yeah. All right. Amen. All right. Um, I had breakfast with Randy and Preston and Greg this week and tossed out a few ideas about a message and um, decided to change my mind after the feedback I got. <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you listen to them or not listen to them? I... It's a long story. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm glad to be here today. I've had a really enjoyable week um, looking at God's Word and asking myself, do I really believe all this? You know, like the songs we just sang, Jason. I can get closer. Um you, you sing a song that says, worthy of every breath that I breathe. You believe that? Every breath? Every single breath? Or you make all things work together for good? Really? All things? Is that the mindset that we have as we go through life? God is causing everything is everything that God does for us good? And so I really tested myself. And uh, here we go. So once again, I come asking you, how horrible is sin against God? America's favorite topic. How horrible is this sin? Have you thought about it since the last message I gave, the last two messages? I, I really can't get it out of my mind how in the natural world everything obeys God exactly but we don't today I want to propose a similar question but I want to ask it in view of the infinite worth of who it is that we sin against I've always thought that one of the measures of evil of sin is who is the violated party if you sin against the president you steal something from the president that's probably different than stealing something from some other nondescript businessman or something. Maybe that's not true, but I'm thinking it is true. What is the position and worth of the person to whom we sin against? I hope that if we would see more clearly who Jesus is, and we just sang, <laughs> then our fear of him and our faith in him would grow. And we would want to pursue more actively the act of putting sin to death in our lives. I'm going to turn this on. Which sin do you ask? Which sin should we put to death? Well, any and every sin of not loving God first, of not loving our neighbor as ourselves, of not living according to his commands, or not coming to him in worship or repentance. Of being lukewarm, you'll be spewed out of his mouth, a lukewarmness. And not seeking to abide or serve with him, or serve him. So ponder this question today, who is it that I sin against? To guide our thinking, we will study a glorious passage about Jesus. This is what I really (coughs) Sometimes we like to study the less obvious and the more obscure verses in the Bible, but that's not today. These may be the six most important consecutive verses in the Bible. It is no exaggeration to say that this is one of the greatest paragraphs in the history of the world. That's what we're going to study today. It is full of foundational and all-encompassing Christ-centered truth packed into one tight paragraph. Get your Bibles out. God may feed us today may God feed us today by revealing Jesus in his magnificent brilliance and may we see again what he has accomplished and what he does on behalf of all those who believe and trust in him note this passage concerning Jesus will shatter all notions about him being just a good teacher 
or only a holy prophet. It's easy but not costly to admire Jesus as a great moral teacher. But the right and proper response to him is not mere appreciation, but to sell all that you have in order to have him. For to see Jesus for who he is and what he has done and will do, and then to simply acknowledge these things but not bow in repentance nor love his commands would be absurd. All sin is absurd. When we can see clearly, we see it for what it is. The right response to seeing Jesus as who he truly is is to joyfully cast ourselves at his feet. So let's call on Jesus now to lift our mind and spirit to soar in this declaration of who he is. Y'all are warming up, right? <laughs> I'll heat it up in here in a minute. Hang on. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to lift our mind and our spirit to soar in this declaration of who Jesus is. The greatest gift ever given. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. So what's the point of this passage? This teaches that Jesus is the authority ruling all things. There's that word all again. And the central focus around which all things orbit. This passage teaches us that you can't understand how to be a human being truly human. Much less truly experience life if you don't see the reality the way this paragraph is going to explain. The passage I want to read is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you would look it up in your Bibles. Except that I'm going to insert the name Jesus to replace all the references to he, his, and him because there's a lot of them. And sometimes I think that if we say Jesus in those spots, it'll help us uncover the treasure that we really have in him. Because his power and his identity are explained and our eternal death and worship of him is made clear. So open your Bibles, follow along. And as you consider the preeminence of Christ, that's what it's titled, subtitled in my Bible is the preeminence of Christ. Ask yourself this. Who is this that I sin against? Why would I do this to someone like this. We might think that we wouldn't. But our history says otherwise. Three more quick points. First. None of us has actually seen the glorified Jesus depicted in these verses. With our physical eyes. But I pray that we'd have spiritual eyes to see this this morning. We talked about when I had breakfast about Jesus told Peter. Feed the sheep. That's what I want to do. I want to feed the sheep of God who Jesus is. None of us has actually seen him. But it seems that the demons back in the day of Jesus <coughs> on earth knew exactly who he was, didn't they? At some point, they had probably seen him in his pre-incarnate glory. Yet they still rebelled against him. We have this hope that when we see Jesus, we will be forever changed. Those demons didn't and don't. So consider their evil against sin, against God. They saw him as he truly was and still rebelled against him. Jesus tells us, he says, blessed are those who haven't seen me yet still believe. He's talking about each one of you. That's the first point. Second point, your faith is going to be tested today. There will be some things that I read that will challenge your whole foundation and structure and umbrella of life. Will you trust and believe what God reveals here today? Will, I urge you, believe him. Believe him. Third, the word all or every 
in these six verses appears eight times. There's a message there. What does all mean? What does all mean? What does every mean? There's a message in those words. Colossians 1.15 through 20, inserting Jesus for all of the pronouns. Jesus is the, invisible, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. Jesus' cross. I intended to go forward down to verse 23, but I... The message got too long. I had to just cut it off at 20. Maybe another time we'll get to the rest of this. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. We've, we've heard that. I ask you to believe it. To know what God is like, we can look at Jesus. To know what God the Father is like, we look at Jesus. In fact, that's the only place we can look to see what God the Father is like. We look to Jesus. He perfectly represents God to men in a form which they can see and know and understand. So let's go line by line. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit, invisible to our physical eyes. But an image is visible. An image is visible. Therefore, Jesus is God made visible. So we could know him. Visibility is a part, a property of creation. God is uncreated, invisible, but the world he created is visible. The whole thing about let there be light was so things would be, could be seen. So the eternal invisible son became visible by taking on human flesh as a man. And this is key. He took on human flesh so that we could see him, so that he'd be visible because he is the image of God. And he became the visible image of the invisible God. This truth about Jesus should guide our thinking in what it means to be made in the image of God. Since while we are made in the image of God, Jesus is the image of God. There's a slight difference. We're, we're a copy of that image. Jesus is the image. This means that before God created the world, he planned that the second person of the Trinity would enter it as a man. Man is the creature God designed for what his son would become when he came into the world. When God made Adam, he was fashioning the human flesh that his son would be given to enter the world. Man is the creature God designed for what his son would become when he came into the world that he had created. My friends, look around. Look around. We were designed by and made for God. We were designed by God and made for him. Jesus shows us this. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Here's the first reference to all. The firstborn of all creation. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed as a divine person. And although humanity was created on the sixth day, God created everything, starting the first day, in view of making the world fit for man. And not just man in general, but for his son when his son took on human flesh who would one day enter the world through the Virgin Mary as the ultimate man, 
the firstborn over all creation. This word firstborn refers to a birth order, particular status, the first child born in the family. Not that Jesus was the first created thing, but being first had great importance in the Old Testament where the firstborn son was considered most significant, inherited his father's place in the family head, as family head, and received his father's blessing and a double portion of the inheritance. I mean, this was a big deal. We see examples of firstborn in Exodus 13 where God proclaimed every firstborn child as his own. Every firstborn animal in the field was to be sacrificed because it belonged to God. He referred to the whole nation of Israel as God's firstborn son. The Passover in Egypt was all about sacrificing a lamb to redeem the life of the firstborn son. The Egyptians didn't know that and so they lost their firstborns that night. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He has the most honored place of everyone ever born. 16. For by Jesus, all, second reference, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Everything that is a thing, no matter where it exists, was created by Jesus. Take a deep breath. That air belongs to Jesus. Created by Jesus. Those lungs. Created by Jesus. It doesn't matter if you can see it or not. Jesus made it. And he didn't rearrange something to make this. He made it from nothing. He said let there be. There is not anything in the world. And in your life. That does not relate to Jesus. We may not always see how it relates But the problem is not with his being. The problem is with our seeing. Jesus made everything that has been made. The invisible things include not just tiny atoms or natural laws or logic or mathematics. But the entire spirit world of which we're only barely aware. Can you imagine rebelling, disregarding or rejecting someone of this power and wisdom? That's what sin is. The one who created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, we, we would sin against him. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and then he goes on. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now this is this is this is interesting. We think what we know our thrones are. What are thrones? It's where the ruler sits. What are dominions? This is what the ruler rules over. Rulers. Well, that's the ruler himself. And authorities. Maybe that's what the ruler appoints to manage the dominion from his throne. But their listing here in this way seems to indicate that Jesus created not only every physical being, but every spirit being as well. He created the entire structure of the angelic world. Not just the visible, but the invisible world and all of the angelic structure, all of those things you see. This one appeared as a man. This one appeared with wings. This one appeared as a wheel within a wheel. And this one appeared as all of those. Jesus created them. Think of Elijah praying for the eyes of his servant to be opened to see the armies of angels in chariots circling overhead. If someone were to object to this exhaustive view of Christ's supremacy over all creation, maybe something he might ask is, well, what about the angels and the spirit world? Even better, what about Satan and the demons? Certainly Jesus didn't create them. Well, he didn't create them evil, but he created them good. We might suspect that if there was any part of reality that wasn't made by, through, or for Jesus, it would be those spirits that rebelled against God. But that's not true. The answer is Jesus made them all. (coughs) Whatever question you have about the sovereign power of Jesus, whatever doubts you have about the relevance of Christ, Paul says, yes, and that too belongs to him. We choose to sin against someone like that. All things were created and through Jesus 
All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And it's the third reference to all, all things. It's not that, it's not only that all space, time, matter, and the spirit world was designed and created by his wisdom and authority. They were all, so all created through his power and skill. Expressly for his own purposes and glory. <coughs> by, through, and for. Design, power, purpose. Pretty complete. First John, I mean, in John 1, 3, the apostle confirms that there is absolutely nothing that Jesus did not create. He says, through him all things were made. Without him... Nothing was made that has been made. I mentioned to you that your faith was going to be tested. Maybe your faith will be encouraged. Maybe your faith, maybe you'll drink in these words from God. And your faith will be built up in the one that you've trusted with your life. Do you remember the potter's house from Jeremiah 18, verse 6? O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Created by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. His creative power is comprehensive and absolute. How then could we choose to ignore and sin against someone like this? Because all sin is evil. Our sin is evil. And one of the worst evils is unbelief. Y'all, this is a fight. This is a battle. Let's urge one another to believe God's word. May our mission in life be to encourage one another and other people to believe God's word. Verse 17. And Jesus is before, say it with me, all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. False teachers back in the day, and still, claimed that while Jesus may be, have been a prominent person, he was not the foremost, highest ranking being in all creation. They thought he was created. But I didn't think he was the highest created being. But Jesus is before all things because he created all things. One way to contemplate, hold all things together is to think of all human and elemental, I mean, atoms, their organization, their relationship, the authorities. God raises up leaders of his own choice, he says. He holds our thoughts and our desires and our affections. He holds positively charged protons together in a nucleus. nucleus. <laughs> and he does hold stars, planets, moons, and comets in orbit. There's nothing held together that is held together except by Jesus. He is, not only is Jesus the source and the agent and the goal of all creation, he continually holds it together. Hebrews 1.3 tells us how he does it. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You're dealing with somebody here whose word can hold the universe and everything in it together. You're, that's who we're dealing with here. When we gather to worship, that's the one that we worship. And not only did he create everything in the beginning, his continual involvement is required every moment of every day. No, he doesn't craft a watch, leave, and then return later to see what happened. There used to be a theory about that a couple hundred years ago. No, he holds the world, all history, all geography, all earthquakes, and all lives in our hands. And we do need to pray for Turkey. It's in other places too. God holds everything together and keeps them every second. Verse 18, and Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Oh, yes. As the head and chief of his people, he holds his church together. 
He is the one who chooses, he initiates, who calls, who saves, who heals, who leads, who forgives, who teaches, who serves, who shepherds, who protects, who provides for his people. Collectively described, not by a business term like organization or tribe or structure, but by an organic term, body. And not just any body, but his body. He possesses, he owns this body. Now, you all have personal experience with a head and a body. You know how it works, right? (laughs) You know how this works. You have a head, you have a body. That doesn't work sometimes. Yeah, that's part, that's part of, part of my sin. Instinctively, we know that the head has to be attached to the body and the body has to be attached to the head. Each of us is a spiritual example of this. Each of us is a physical example of the spiritual truth. You are example of this truth. The head is attached to the body. What happens if it's detached? You die. You die. <laughs> In the face of those humanistic philosophers who deny the importance of the physical body in preference to the spiritual, Paul calls attention to it to show Jesus' <clears throat> intimate union with all believers for all times. He uses a physical example, Paul does, to show us a spiritual truth. The Savior is the head of his church and is united to it in faith and love where each believer is received and nourished as an equally significant member of his body. That's what Jesus is the head of. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This this beginning. Jesus is the beginning. Where have we heard that word before? Beginning. Revelation 22, at the very end of the Bible, 22.13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. Jude 25, written by Jesus' half-brother. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, authority, dominion, before all time, and now and forever. Amen. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. These words in the beginning are identical to the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's no accidental coincidence. All of these writers of scripture are telling us something. John is saying before there was any space, time, or matter, or anything, before anything had been made, Jesus is. But didn't we just address the thought about firstborn of all creation? Is that what we're talking about here? Because this says firstborn from the dead. Maybe this is something different. Is firstborn from creation different than firstborn of the dead? Ooh. We did consider him as firstborn of all creation. But now Jesus is said to be firstborn from the dead. Hmm. What a strange, bewildering phrase this is this. To whom else could this phrase apply? Firstborn from the dead. What other founder of a religion or holy prophet could ever claim or would ever claim to be the firstborn of the dead? Who else could say that? No one. It's absurd to think that anyone would ever even dare to claim such a thing as that. (coughs) Would they? Absolutely. They would be... (coughs) Would they even know what it means? Do we even know what it means? Firstborn from the dead. I'm worshiping you, firstborn of the dead. I need to write a song about firstborn of the dead. Because he raised himself from the dead. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to it. Firstborn from the dead. Paul is not the only apostle who knows this. John writes in Revelation 1, 4 and 5, Grace to you and peace from him 
who is and was and who is to come. That's the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, who to him who loves us, oh, how he loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. At Passover, Moses' day, sacrificial lambs were slain for each Jewish household to spare the firstborn son from the angel of death. This was to prepare them for the exodus out of Egypt. But Jesus is the true Passover lamb who died for the sake of his people. Unlike the firstborn sons of the Israelites, the true firstborn of Israel was not spared. And his death leads to an even greater rescue for his people from bondage than freedom from Egypt ever could. As firstborn of the dead, Jesus is the first to be eternally raised from the dead into a glorified life. Jesus initiates a whole new class of people and existence that never had existed before. A glorified human. He is the firstborn of this class, literally, and in every way. Not only in time, but also in significance. Jesus is the firstborn of this new class of people. But not only for him, but for every person who believes in him, who will follow him in the same way. With the resurrection of the dead, Scripture divides the evil present age in which we live from the eternal age of heaven. The resurrection is that dividing line. Jesus' resurrection has brought this future age into our day. And he has become the founder and the initiator into this new glorious life for all those whose sins are forgiven. Faith in Jesus assures us that we will be raised unto eternal life just as he was. Not just as a spiritual resurrection, but with our physical bodies raised in glory. Thank God that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. There is no Savior like him. There is no Savior other than him. I call you to believe and ask, why would I sin against this? Why would I prefer anything other than what he gives and provides? That in everything, oh, everything, everything, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Preeminent means first in everything. (laughs) First in importance, first in honor, first in exaltation. The verse states that Jesus is the head in the beginning and the firstborn. He's the head. He's the beginning and the firstborn. So that in everything it would be seen, he would be seen, known in worship as preeminent. So that he would be worshipped as preeminent. It ought to be clear to us by now that Jesus towers above and excels and surpasses all others. There's no one like him. He gives us faith worth more than gold. So that we can have a sure hope that we will follow him through death into resurrection and into the new creation. When we are found in Christ, we will reign with him, heirs of all things in heaven and on earth. Soon we will celebrate resurrection day and someone will say, rejoice, Christ is risen. And others will answer, he is risen indeed. Again, I ask you, when God has secured and offered us such a salvation as this. In Christ, and then sees us doubt or reject. How do you continue to wait so patiently for us? He waits patiently. He supplies what we need. He cares for us in our deepest, darkest place. 
Why does he continue to offer mercy and extend grace to all those who would confess their sin? This is his preeminence. We talked about at breakfast. One of the most wicked kings in Israel. 55 years he reigned? Manasseh. Every line about Manasseh is hard. But at the end, Manasseh showed signs of repentance. And what did God do? He received him. It's never too late for repentance until it is too late. 19. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Is God full? How do you answer that question? What is fullness of God? Let me ask you this way. Does God suffer any lack regarding his fullness? No. We, we, we're pretty sure about that. God suffers no lack of fullness. And is God pleased and happy that all his fullness is in Jesus? Well, yeah, he says he's pleased that all of his fullness is in Jesus. And so are we, aren't we? Because now, to our complete satisfaction, we can find in Jesus the very fullness of God. What does that mean? That means there is no delight, no goodness, no mercy found in the Father for which we must go around Jesus. We must bypass Jesus to access directly from the Father. No, 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 no. Everything in God the Father is in Jesus. In fact, we don't go around Jesus. We go through Jesus to access these things. All the fullness, all the joy, all the beauty of God is found in Jesus in the flesh. Nothing of the essence of God is absent from Jesus. In other words, if you want to see God, look to Jesus. Now, a little pause. Preston sent me an email about um, one of the most well-known persons in history, Plato. And Plato had these different things that he wrote about. And one of the things he wrote about was the theory of forms and he would say you look at this and it's an apple and he would say well what makes it an apple because he'd have he'd have a bigger apple over here or a smaller apple what what makes them an apple and he would say well it's their appleness there's an appleness about them so what you see is a image of the essence of an apple well, I had just read that Jesus is the image of the Father. And I was thinking, Plato was on to something right here, but he had no clue what he was talking about. Plato's theory of form says that for everything, you see in an image of it because the essence of that thing is beyond it. I think this is where some of the, the Catholic tradition about the transubstantiation of <clears throat> The bread became. They were really influenced by Plato. You know, they said it might look like bread, it might taste like bread, but once we pray, it becomes the flesh of Jesus. You know, I think they were influenced by Plato here. But I was reading that and I thought, you know, it's so much better than what Plato thought. He was a wise man. I mean, he did a lot of brilliant things. But when we, nothing of the essence of God is absent when we look at Jesus. There's nothing. There is God, but the Father. Beyond him, in a way. But when we see Jesus, we see the exact representation of the Father. <coughs> he always and only said what the Father said. He always and only did what the Father commanded him to do. He doesn't take any role that, that the Father didn't assign to him. And no one else pleased the Father in this way. So only Jesus could show to all humanity what God the Father was like. Aren't you glad he came? Mm -hmm. Colossians 2, 2. There's just the next chapter in this letter. goes on to say that Jesus is God's mystery revealed. And a couple of verses later in 9 and 10, he says, For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is the fullness of God in human flesh. 
And it is in him that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God are found. Verse 20. And through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether on earth, all things on earth, or in heaven, all things in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. We've made it to the last verse of this paragraph. And now, the glorious application of all these wonderful truths, of all these earlier statements, appears in our sight. Why? Reconcile it to himself by making peace by the blood. Reconciled to himself by making peace by the blood. To reconcile means what? To remove barriers, to restore relationships with the goal. With the goal. And what's the goal? To enjoy that other person. You want to you you enjoy them. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he alone is qualified and authorized to redeem human sinners and reconcile them to God. There is no other mediator able to do this. When Jesus makes peace by the sacrifice of himself, he doesn't just restore us to creation so we can enjoy it as our final satisfaction. The streets of gold, that's really cool. But that's not the final satisfaction we want. He reconciles us to who? To himself. We are reconciled to himself. And yes, to all each other and to all creation at the same time. Because he's head over all. The Lord's work of redemption was so great that no aspect of creation goes untouched by what he accomplished at Calvary. Upon his return to earth, what is now broken in nature will be fixed. Thank you, God. Evil and chaos will be judged and cease. The redeemed will be free of pain and gain true dominion. All to the glory of God. No part of the created order will escape the benefits of his reconciliation. And we will have peace with God for eternity. This peace is made by the blood of the cross. Why the blood? There's a whole message behind this I'm going to give someday. I've been working on it. But just a little bit here. Jesus, I mean, God tells us in the Old Testament that it's only by shedding the blood that sin is covered. When he made the animal skins for Adam and Eve, do you think those animals bled to death when they gave up their skin? Yeah. The shedding of blood means life must be given up. There's popular songs about one drop is all it takes. Well, that's that's a cute phrase. But it didn't take just one drop. It took all of it. He had to die. You don't die if you lose one drop of blood. So to, to think about it for the truth, shedding the blood means the sacrifice dies. Life is given up. Here, here we are. Each of us has chosen the most irrational, the most pathetic evil we possibly could. We've distrusted the one who is infinitely trustworthy. We prefer to delight in sin and go our own way to destruction. Sin is why we live in a world of war, chaos, disaster, and disease. When the eternal Son of God took on human flesh and blood, which was designed by him and for him, he entered the world he created as the one in whom and through whom and for whom the world exists. His mission was to make peace. Not by killing us, but by reconciling us through his blood, by giving his own life as a sacrifice to a phone for his chosen people. Are you, are, you, are you grabbing hold of this? 
The Christian life now and forever will be an ongoing discovery of the awesome Jesus Christ. I pray that every day we live on this earth, we will love him more. We will know him better. We will serve him more gratefully and joyfully because that's what's going to happen in heaven. He says that we'll know him as he is, but I think we we continue to learn and enjoy and experience more of Jesus as heaven goes. And that's why he's infinite, because eternity is infinite and they all match up. <clears throat> as we grow in grace, we realize that abiding in Jesus is the key to all life. This is why those things we once thought not as sin, suddenly we now see as sin. Does that happen to you? Is it just me? The things that I used to not even be an ounce concerned with, now I say, God, why would, why did I do that? That's sin. We're seeing Jesus more clearly. His Spirit is working in us. But if we're honest, many times we forget that God loves us on account of the perfections of Jesus. God acquits us as not guilty because Jesus has bound us to him with this gift of faith. So his record of imperfection is imputed to us. Faith has attached us to Jesus, so when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. God doesn't love us more when we put sin to death, but... He does give us more freedom and joy in Him when we do. He gives you more freedom and joy. More sustaining power to live your life. I wonder why I steadily choose to sin against someone as great as Jesus. Maybe you do too. We were singing songs about him this morning. And it was just it was just washing my spirit to think about. Oh how he loves me. Oh how he loves me. Worthy of every song I could ever sing. He makes all things work together for good. He never leaves me. We need Jesus daily. Set us free from the law of sin and death, not just by cleansing our lips and our hands and our feet, but also by healing our hearts and restoring our affections for Jesus as our head. We ask him to empower us to give him our full attention and to trust him to go with and serve him wherever and whenever he calls. I have one final note here. Romans 4, Romans 1, verse 4, <clears throat> Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. <coughs> when Jesus was elevated to the Father's right hand, he secured preeminence over all things. But his exaltation actually began... Not at the resurrection, but as he was being prepared and buried in a rich man's new, unused tomb. Very unusual for someone crucified on a cross to be prepared for burial, anointed, wrapped in linen, laid in a cut-out cave. Can you imagine the cost to cut out a cave? A rich man's tomb, unused. Normally they took criminals off the cross and threw them in the fire pit dumpster, Gehenna. Jesus' exaltation began immediately. God the Father couldn't wait to start exalting his son. The pre-incarnate Jesus was always the great king. But through his perfect obedience and victory over sin and Satan on the cross, 
Jesus, the God-man, won a lordship that fully includes his humanity. Today, in heaven, the glorified God-man rules all creation. He holds all things together. And he offers his blood to make peace by reconciling all believers to himself. His name is the Lord Jesus. Church, don't you want to stop your sin against Jesus? That's why he came, to die. Don't be afraid to confess your sin to him. Or be afraid to make different choices about how you live your life. He'll go with you. You can choose to follow his, his word. Believe it. And may the grace of God go with us. Let's pray. Lord, there's a, there's a hymn that's sung, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. We can debate what the deciding means. But we, there's no need to debate what following Jesus means. And there's no reason to debate what turning back means. Lord, I pray for grace and strength for this fellowship and for anyone who hears this message that we would look at who you truly are how you've been revealed in scripture first Lord that we would believe these words there's no one like you and in ways Lord <clears throat> that we've never even considered you are greater than what we've ever dreamed you are preeminent you are firstborn of our creation you are firstborn from the dead we realize, Lord, that, that no person in their right mind would ever claim to be those things. But you not only claim to be them, Lord, you are. That's what you are. That's who you are. So, Lord, we ask for grace and mercy and faith to walk with you. Lord, to love you, to abide in you. And Lord, to let your spirit abide within us. To shape our thinking, Lord, to empower us. Lord, it, mean, it doesn't mean that we're going to be cautious and fearful. It means we're going to be empowered and courageous to move with you and to live for you. Lord, I pray that you would honor your word here this morning. And Lord, that what we've fed on today would bring great nourishment and life to each one here. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your holy name.